mentioned earlier that Romans 8 is one of the most powerful passages, uh, uh, chapters of Scripture in all the Bible. And one of the reasons I love it is because it details, it's very Trinitarian. And what I mean by that is it details the work of the Father, uh, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit in securing our salvation. In fact, we're calling this, uh, the subtitle for this series is Secure. And so each week we're going to tell you a different reason why you should or can rest securely in Christ. When we talk about being secure in Christ, we're talking about uh, chasing after our identity, uh, finding our identity in Christ. Uh, So I'm not just talking about doing life with Jesus, I'm talking about Jesus at the center of your one and only life. Now, I want to show you a picture that I think perfectly illustrates what I want to accomplish in this series. So in this picture, there's a storm. This is not necessarily a peaceful setting, right? You can see there's thunder and lightning, there's wind, there's rain, there's a storm coming. You can also see that this little bird is sitting in a nest in front of a waterfall. It's a torrential waterfall. I would imagine that the sound and the noise would be constant and overwhelming. This is not a picture of a peaceful setting. But yet that bird sits securely in that nest. Now friends, some of you, in the la- if you evaluate the last few years of your life, maybe some of you haven't had what you would call a peaceful life. Maybe a storm blew into your life. Maybe a storm is getting ready to blow into your life. Maybe the noise was overwhelming at times for you. But I know this, that in any season of your life, as surely as that bird is nesting securely in its nest, that you can rest securely in Christ. And today what we're going to talk about is that we can rest securely in Christ because in Christ there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the irony of this amazing statement in Romans 8 that is so practical and we'll get to that in a minute. The irony of that is that Paul has spent the first seven chapters of the book of Romans arguing for exactly the opposite. He has been arguing that all people everywhere are sinful and rebellious toward God. He has been arguing that as a result, all of us deserve condemnation, that we've each earned that we deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. He also argues that left to themselves, people will always spiral away from God, never toward God. In fact, a little later in Romans 5, he points out that it was Adam who first introduced sin and rebellion into the world. And he says, but in the same way that Adam, as one man, introduced sin into the world, Jesus, as one man, came to take sin away from the world. He came to bring a resolution, an offering uh, for sin. In fact, you're going to notice in these first four verses in chapter 8 that Paul talks about something that he calls the law of sin and death. And that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? So I want to 
to, I want to talk for a few minutes about what that is. He actually tells us what that is in the chapter before in Romans chapter 7. Here's how Paul kind of laments the law of sin and death. Here's what he says. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. In other words, he says, I want to do the right thing. I just don't have the power to always pull it off. Then he goes on to say this, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice instead the evil that I do not want to do. So here Paul lays out a part of him. He calls it the flesh. It's part of human nature so all of us as human beings have what Paul labels flesh and our flesh always wants to do what's comfortable and easiest it's what is it's that part of us that wants to rebel against God it's that part of us that wants to go our own way and do our own thing and you've probably felt this from time to time like when you're evaluating hey well okay here's something I know I shouldn't do and so there's a tug of war that happens right and part of you says oh no if you do that it'll feel really good that would be awesome that's your flesh and so Paul is lamenting the law of sin and death here and here's what he's saying here's what the law of sin and death is human beings apart from God have to sin they have no choice They have no ability not to sin. They don't have the power to pull it off. It is as certain as a law. Um, And it's unavoidable. It's absolutely unavoidable. Now I'm going to come back because Paul's not only going to talk about the law of sin and death. Well, let me, let me finish that up. So I want you to look at the first few verses. In other words, the last few verses in chapter 7. The verses that come right before this verse, this Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Uh, here's what he says. What a re- so here's his conclusion. And again, he's lamenting, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? When he says body of death, he's referring to the flesh again. Who's going to rescue me from the inclinations of my flesh? Who's going to rescue me from that? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, or I want to, but with my flesh, I actually serve the law of sin and the law of death. So that's his last conclusion. That's the law of sin and death. Human beings have no choice, no ability apart from God. They're they're always going to spiral away from God. They're always going to choose sin over God. And then there's these revolutionary words. Okay, now, in other words, he's saying, look, there's a new sheriff in town. Yeah, there is a law of sin and death, but Jesus has come to overrule and overturn that law because he brings a new law with him. It's the law of life and peace in the Spirit. It's the law of the Holy Spirit. And, And... Paul's going to argue that that's a game changer, that that changes everything. Now, before we talk about the why and the how of that, I just want to focus on those two words, no condemnation, no condemnation. Now, 
No condemnation means a lot of things, but it means first that your past cannot be used and will not be used against you, at least not by God, ever. It also means, and this is so important, and I'll talk more about this at the end of our message, it also means that whatever you are going through right now, if something bad is happening in your life, that is not about God's punishment. That's just about life in this world. And there's a big difference. So, you're, so whatever you're going through right now, the fact that there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus means God is not punishing you for something that you did in your past. Furthermore, it means that your future status before God, your standing before God is not in doubt. It means that God accepts you. God is not put off with you when you have a bad sin day. God still wants you to run to him. God accepts you. And finally, it means that the fact that there is no condemnation means that Jesus did something for you and for me that we could have never done for ourselves. The phrase, no condemnation, comes as a gift, not a wage. We don't, we don't live lives, right? In other words, uh, we're gifted that wor- those words. We don't earn them through our own good standing. In fact, Paul's argued through the first seven chapters of the book that it's impossible for a person to earn a good standing before God. So this is huge, and, um, and here's the reason this is such an important truth to me. You may have noticed this. I'm sure that you've felt this or noticed this. You've probably felt it about every day, and that's this. Friends, we live in a world filled with condemnation. Whether it be in the political arena, whether it be on social media, whether it be at the water cooler, at work, condemnation of others is the rule, not the exception. But what if the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the fact that the tomb is empty, what if that, what if the gospel actually offers a solution to this problem and it does and it does because there's a principle at work here and that principle looks like this condemnation comes out of you because it's in you condemnation comes out of you because it's in you in other words you could maybe even say it this way, condemned people regularly condemn people. Condemned people regularly condemn people. And conversely, gracious people often extend grace to other people. See? Um, So here's my point. Uh, The reason that we live in a world filled with condemnation where people just heap condemnation on one another so freely in a way that I actually marvel at sometimes I mean it's just ugly out there wouldn't you agree the gospel offers a solution to that 
Because people that, have, that, that receive that phrase, there's no condemnation, and they receive that as a gift from God, are grateful. And the last thing they'd want to do would be to turn around and condemn someone else. We condemn because condemnation is in us. And, and the gospel can solve that problem. See? Now, uh, and then I want you to look at the why. He talks about the why and the how. How is it that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? How did that happen? Verses 2 and 3. Because the law of the spirit of life, so there's the law of the spirit. He introduces this second law in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh... God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. So here's what Paul's arguing. He's saying, look, you and I are proclaimed guilty uh, by the law. We're all lawbreakers. So so, so, for example, and I don't want this to be confusing for anybody, Paul really talks about the law in one of three ways. He talks about the law of the Spirit, he talks about the law of sin and death, and then here in verses 3 and 4, he talks about just the law. When he's talking about the law, he's talking about the old covenant law, the law that the nation of Israel lived under. So, for example, think Ten Commandments. How do I know I'm a lawbreaker? Well, because God gave us the Ten Commandments. So it demonstrates me guilty of sin, of being a lawbreaker. But, but, but without that law, I would have no idea, no inclination of my sin. And I'll talk about why that's so important in just a minute. So he's essentially just saying that the law of sin and death always leads to death. He argues that we sin out of our flesh. And so here, though, Paul introduces another law that Christ brought with him called the law of the Spirit that sets us free from the law of sin and death. And I want to illustrate that. So all of us are familiar uh, because we have to live by some of these laws every single day. So, um, so there's a law, a physical law, that we're all very familiar with. It's the law of gravity. Now, the law of gravity says that the gravitational pull of earth holds me down it keeps me uh, down and grounded right I'm aware of the law of gravity every time I go up and try to dunk a basketball because I can't do it anymore right I just can't the law of gravity keeps me from doing that every single time you fall out of bed or you take a fall doing something that's the law of gravity at work this is a law that we're all very very familiar with but at locations like these all over the world, the law of gravity is temporarily suspended and overruled by more powerful laws. The laws of thrust, the laws of lift, the laws of aerodynamics. And those laws suspend the law of gravity. Those laws are more powerful than the law of gravity so that at least temporarily we can uh, overcome gravity. 
Friends, in exactly the same way, Jesus came to town, a new sheriff came to town, and he brought a new law. And he brought a new law that overwhelms and suspends the law of sin and death. And that is the law of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, yeah, that's just really, really a big, big deal. What I want to point out is this, that it, within every single one of us, our flesh wants to rebel against God, and there's a tension, there's a tug of war that happens between us. Here's how we can articulate that fully now. There is the law of sin and death that is at work within us, within our flesh, and then there is the law of the spirit, which is at work within us in our soul or in our spirit. And those two are in opposition to one another. And we're going to talk more about that opposition next week. But suffice it to say that that's there. This is a real battle that we all live with that tension every single day. Now we said that part of the law of sin and death meant that people had no choice but to sin. They had no ability not to sin, no power not to sin. But because of the law of the Spirit, that's no longer true. We now have the ability not to sin. We now have the ability, because of the Holy Spirit, to choose not to. We have the power not to sin. That's why he says, look, you've been set free from the law of sin and death, you no longer have to sin. Now, you may still choose to sin, but you no longer have to sin. You no longer have to spiral away from the inevitability of that law. See, this is what he, really what he's saying. In fact, look what he says in verse 3. He, he says this, For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did do. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Now it's interesting here because he just he says for what the law could not do. Now here he's talking about the Old Testament law, the law that the nation Israel, the covenantal law they were under. And he was saying, look, the law couldn't make people righteous. It could only, it could only demonstrate their guilt. It can only incriminate them. Let me give you an example of this. So a week and a half ago on Saturday, well, a little over a week ago, I went to the hospital and I did an MRI on my shoulder. Um, and that MRI showed damage. It showed a torn labrum. It showed a couple of other tears in there and confirmed my suspicions. But here's the thing. Once I got out of the MRI, that diagnosis needs to lead to treatment. In other words, an MRI isn't going to solve my shoulder problem. Only surgery can do that, right? All an MRI can do is diagnose my problem. And what Paul is arguing here is that all the law could do was diagnose our problem. But it couldn't fix our problem. That required something greater, and that's why Jesus came. See, the law was never meant to save you or prove you righteous. It was there to show you and I our need for a Savior. It was put there as our tutor, Paul says elsewhere, to lead us to Christ. So he just wants us to know, look, God took action. 
You know, it's about what Jesus has done for us, not what we have done for ourselves. And some of us are here and we may think, hey, this is really cool. I'm under no condemnation. That probably means I can do whatever I want, right? I can live any way that I want to because there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ. Well, not quite. I want to tell you why and for two reasons, and I'll illustrate the first one. So let's say that uh, you are going to college, and you figure out pretty quickly that college is really, really expensive. So year one, you take a job, maybe your job's at Starbucks. Year two, you're at Chick-fil-A. Year three, uh, you know, you're somewhere else, but you're working part-time, but you're noticing something. Even though you're working, you're doing everything you can while you're going to school to pay for college, the bills keep piling up and adding up, and you keep taking on more and more and more debt. And you were raised in a single-parent home, and so one day, just as you're about to start your fourth year of college, your mom comes to you and she says, honey, I've been thinking about this. I know I already work a full-time job, but I've decided I'm going to take a second job. I'm going to work nights and I'm going to work weekends to help you pay for college. And then as a, as a dutiful child, you would say, mom, you have heard from the Lord, wouldn't you? You would probably say that. Here's the thing. So is that daughter going to go, Hey, mom's paid for college. This is awesome. I can party my whole senior year. No. You know what that daughter is going to think? She's going to think, my mom is sacrificing. My mom is de depriving herself of rest and relaxation and things that she might want or things that she might need. She is depriving herself so that I can go to school. I need to take this more seriously. I need to buckle down. I need to study up. I need to do everything I can to get through college because my mom is sacrificing for me. Friends, this is exactly, listen, Jesus came to sacrifice for you and it was a way bigger deal than just college. He came to sacrifice for all the junk, to pay the penalty for all the sin, all the disregard, all the things, all your junk, all the junk in your trunk that you've accumulated. Jesus came to die and pay the price for every bit of that. He came to pay a debt you could have never repaid yourself or that I could have never paid by myself. And see, so you know what people want to do in the face of that kind of grace and sacrifice and mercy? They say, man, I want to be the man Jesus that you want me to be. I mean, you sacrificed for me. You gave your life for me. So the least I can do is live centered upon you. So that's one thing. But then I also want you to note something else. And this is um, out of verse uh, 4. Look at what it says. It says, he did this in order that the law's requirement will be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, to walk according to something is to live under it, to live surrendered to it. So he's telling us we can either live surrendered to our flesh, which wants to rebel against God, or we can live surrendered to the Holy Spirit, which want, who wants to help us live true north, live in the, and be the men and women that we should be, right? And so notice that he, he says, look, in doing so, you're set free so that you can walk according to the Spirit. 
doing what the Spirit would desire, living surrendered to the Holy Spirit in your life. So this isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. This is actually a card that equips you and empowers you to live yielded and surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, so let me just say a couple things. If you're here this morning and you kind of live with the idea that, well, the, the, the message of Christianity is, you know, be a good person, be a moral person, which it's not, but that's been kind of your idea. Uh, my guess would be that you have a joyless Christianity and a very, very superficial relationship with your Heavenly Father. Because if, if the goal is for you to be good and you're not good, you're just going to hide from God. You're not going to run to God. Your shame and your guilt are going to keep you from Him. And you're going to think that every single time you mess up, God is disappointed and angry with you when He's not. Again, this is at the central message of Christianity. And so let me just say this. I want to say that some of the most sinful people I have ever met are religious people. People who think that the goal is to be good. Uh, because they, they become motivated by things like pride, arrogance, and judgmentalism. You know why? Because they become convinced that they're doing it better. That, that in other words, their goodness is better than everybody else's. And so they're on a perch and they can look down on and they can judge and frown on everybody else. Friends, that is not what the message of no condemnation is for. It's for gratitude and joy and thanksgiving. It's never to result in judgment or pride or arrogance. And I'll tell you why. Because ladies and gentlemen, there's a new sheriff in town. And it's not the law of sin and death anymore. His name is Jesus, and he brought with him the law of the Spirit. And I just want to talk about in the last few minutes that we have together the practicality of what it means to live with no condemnation and why this is so important. So no condemnation means, I'm just going to tease out three, but there are endless possibilities of this. No condemnation means no condemnation in physical pain. See, so when you suffer physical pain, and that pain lasts a long time, and, it, and that pain seems to get worse instead of better, and it even seems that it may end in death and not healing, the accuser, your enemy, the devil is going to come to you and he's going to say this. He's going to say, God is angry with you. God is punishing you. You're sick. You're in pain. You're ill as part of God's punishment. That's why you're suffering so much. Well, how do you stand up against that assault? How do you not just cave up under that? I'll tell you how. Romans chapter 8 Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, when we are in pain, when we are sick, that is happening because we live in a fallen world. That is not happening because God is angry with you or punishing you. That's a tape in your head you need to erase. So it means that. Uh, 
It also means there is no condemnation in marriage difficulties. Now, it's really important we define this one. So you may be here this morning and you may feel disappointed in your marriage. You may feel in some ways disappointed by your spouse or even deeply wronged by him or her. So the question is, where are you going to find the moral power to forgive and keep on loving and keep on wooing and keep on hoping and not resorting to condemnation on your spouse? How do you do that? Well, the answer is Romans 8, chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for in Christ Jesus. And you will remind yourself of that again and again and again, that even though you are a sinner, in Christ God does not condemn you. And so you have a good and right and free standing with God. And friends, it is only from that reservoir of mercy and grace that you will be able to draw up buckets of mercy for your spouse. It's only in that way. There is no condemnation in marriage. And then, finally, the last one. There is, and this is a big deal. This is a huge one. There, it means there is no condemnation in the failures of parenting or the shortcomings of parenting. So here's the question. What are you going to do when, not if, your children break your heart? Here's what happens. Our children are, so all, my, all our kids are adults. They sometimes make decisions that their mother and I don't agree with, right? They sometimes uh, disappoint us. Not often, but it happens. And when that happens, there's kind of a conversation that happens in our home between Jackie and I, and the conversation goes like this. Man, what, what are you, how do you think, you know, where did we go wrong? Like, you know, didn't we give our best? And, you know, hey, so, like, is this, like, our fault? Did we do something wrong or bad? Did we sell our kids short? And, then, and there's this temptation, isn't there, to diagnose, like, like how, how badly did we screw up our kids? Like, like how much of that is on us and kind of try to figure that out and is it 10 percent or 20 percent and so the question is this how do you just keep loving your kids well here's the answer Romans chapter 8 verse 1 because that tells us that in the end we don't have to sort all that out and the truth of the matter is only God can sort that out anyway friends so I would not waste another moment another breath trying to sort out what you did to screw up your kids. God, only God, can sort that out. Now, I'm going to say something else that I think is really, really important. So, no condemnation means this, that your standing with God does not hang on figuring out how much was yours and how much was not where your children are concerned. Your standing before God as a loved and forgiven child is this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So with that freedom, something very powerful happens. And this is, so I just mentioned that we want to kind of try to sort this out after the fact, 
right? But it doesn't mean, so in those moments when we do fail our kids, this verse is so powerful. Because here's what it means. It means that our kids know we're screw-ups, right? They know we're not perfect. So when we mess up, just being able to say, hey, you know what? When I, when I lost my temper and I yelled at you, I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? It frees you. Because, right, the gospel's already outed you as a colossal moral screw-up anyway. So, so what do you have to lose, right? You can just admit your failures in the moment with your children. And you know what that's going to do? It's going to show them, wow, mom and dad, they needed a savior. Maybe I need a savior. Maybe, maybe I can apologize for my junk, right? See, it's, it's teaching them super valuable, valuable relational things. All right. So all that to say, it's just this is so practical, and this just applies to so many areas. Now, Paul's introduced us to the law of the Spirit. I already said that we're called to walk according to that law. In other words, to live surrendered to the Holy Spirit every single day. We're going to unpack this in great detail next week. Next week, this week, we're saying, look, we're securing Christ because there is no condemnation in Him. Next week, we're going to say we're secure in Christ because we. We have the life and peace of the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us. So you don't want to miss next week. Just another example of unpacking a principle of security. But this week, here's what I want to do to set that up. Uh, so here's what that means. That if you're in this room and you've said yes to Jesus or you're, you've accepted Christ as your uh, Lord and Savior at some point, in that moment the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life. And he took up residence in your life to begin to guide you and lead you every single day. That means he guides you through his, uh, what the biblical writers call his still and small voice. And so what that means is that you have to get quiet enough, you have to be still enough to hear what the Holy Spirit of God is saying to you what he's asking you to telling you how you need to surrender or submit to him so i'm gonna um i'm gonna pray and i'm gonna pray for the holy spirit to talk to every child of god in the room now listen if you don't hear the holy spirit speak that may that doesn't necessarily mean you're not a child we're going to talk about that principle later in romans 8 as well it just may mean that so much sins accumulated in your life you're not you're not hearing from him and that you need to dislodge that dam so that you know that can be restored right but i'm going to pray that the holy spirit would talk to every one of us in the room because we've been called this week to live surrendered to the law of the spirit so let me pray and then I'm just going to give a moment for us to be really quiet to hear the Spirit's voice. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit that you sent him into our lives as a gift. So Holy Spirit, would you speak into our hearts this morning? Would you speak into our minds and into our lives this very week Holy Spirit, would you assure those that need assurance? Would you convict those that need conviction? Would you guide those, Lord Jesus, who need guidance? 
Would you strengthen those who need strength? Would you give hope to those who need hope? Would you speak into our hearts with the still, small voice of your spirit? And so we ask you, Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit would say to us in these next few moments. Thank you, Papa, that you've not left us to ourselves, but you've given us a gift, the promised Holy Spirit. Help us listen well to him, we ask and pray in the mighty name of our Jesus. Amen. So now may you, each of you, live freshly surrendered to the Holy Spirit this week. May you know his strength and his help in each and every day. God bless you guys. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning.